Mark chapter 3 is where we will continue our study in the gospel according to Mark this morning. I mentioned to you uh, previously, it's been a month or so, so I understand if you don't remember, but I mentioned previously that beginning in chapter 2 and running through the beginning of chapter 3, we have a section where Mark highlights for us the conflict that met the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, of course, to teach about the identity of who he is and what his ministry meant in a world that hated him, but also to teach disciples what it means to follow him, that if Jesus was controversial, if Jesus experienced suffering, then we too will experience the very same things. And at the end of chapter 2, we saw a controversy arise over the Sabbath, and it runs right into chapter 3, our passage for this morning as well. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all take both of these sections together. I told you last time that this was a two-round fight. Round one was at the end of chapter two, and round two is here at the beginning of chapter three. We'll look to round two, where Jesus, of course, will deal the knockout blow, and will send the Pharisees reeling, licking their wounds, plotting to kill him. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6 is where we'll be this morning. Please follow along as I read. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to them, to, to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we approach now your word, we pray that you would help us. We desperately want to understand your word so that we might understand who you are. We ask, O God, that as you reveal the Lord Jesus Christ to us in your word, you would give us eyes to see. We pray, O God, that anyone who might have a hard heart would be given by you a soft heart. We ask that this revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ would once again do its saving work in us. We pray, O God, that as we look to Jesus, we would continually be encouraged to keep looking to Jesus. We would be continually encouraged that we have a substitute, one who died in our place, one who himself is the righteousness of God, and by faith credits that very righteousness to all who believe in him. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so together we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You could have cut the tension with a knife in the synagogue that day. It was another Sabbath, and the Jewish people were gathered together to worship in a setting much like this one. As Jesus entered the building, all eyes were on him. He was, after all, the talk of the land, this teacher who taught with an authority that they had never seen before, who could, with the touch of his hand, heal the sick. And with the command of his voice, cast out demons. But there was one group in particular in the synagogue that day who watched Jesus like a hawk. Their eyes straining, hoping to catch him do something that they deemed to be unlawful according to their own law. Something that they could bring against him, some type of charge that they could take to the Sanhedrin, the the court of law, have him arrested, and perhaps even exterminated. 
They were seeking finally to get rid of this nuisance named Jesus. They had been agitated with him for a while now. First, they had accused him of blasphemy because in addition to healing a paralyzed man, he also pronounced that the man's sins were forgiven. Next, they were appalled by the company that he kept as he had the nerve to eat a meal with sinners and tax collectors. And his response would only have thrown fuel on the fire as he explained to them that it was in fact sinners whom he had come to call to himself. Then they witnessed him and his disciples breaking their religious traditions as he explained to them that it was pointless to fast as long as the bridegroom was with them. Because he, in fact, had not come to conform to their traditions, but he had come to bring something entirely new. So they saw him then as a blasphemer, a friend of sinners, a religious apostate and lawbreaker. And then one day, they witnessed his disciples walking through a grain, uh, walking through a field of grain. And doing what, according to them, was a violation of the Sabbath law. A violation that, in fact, according to them, could mean the sentence of death. As he pointed out to them from the Bible the reality that the Sabbath was not made as a burden to man, but was made for man, as a blessing to man, he concluded his lesson with the astounding claim that he, the Son of Man, was in fact the Lord of the Sabbath. You can imagine then, can't you, the hatred that burned in their hearts as they watched him walk through the door. Their eyes were fixed on him. Not as a distraction, but as a target. They fixed their crosshairs directly on Jesus. This blasphemer, this sinner, this lawbreaker, who does he think he is? The reality was that Jesus, the Son of God, had come simply to announce good news straight from heaven. Good news that the kingdom of God had come and in fact all were invited in. Good news that man could be reconciled to God and forgiven fully and forever from every sin he has ever committed. Good news that this gift of God was given to anyone who would repent of their sin and believe in the gospel which he preached. They may have called him a blasphemer, but the truth is, he had truly forgiven this man's sins and healed him from his paralysis. They may have been offended by the company which he ate with, but the truth is, he was simply demonstrating the compassionate heart of God towards sinners. They may have been dismayed that he would break their law, but the fact of the matter is that he was the only person to have ever lived without breaking God's law. Blasphemer? No. God in the flesh. Sinner? No. The Savior of sinners. Lawbreaker? No, no, no. The Lord of the Sabbath and the lawgiver himself. How could they have possibly been so blind? 
How could they have missed what was patently obvious? It is because they suffered from the spiritual condition known as a hard heart. You see, their problem with Jesus wasn't simply that he was gaining popularity and therefore their popularity was dwindling. No, no. It was much deeper than that. Their problem was not a social problem. Their problem was a spiritual problem. And while they, the ruling class of Israel, thought themselves to be righteous before God, the reality was that the righteous God himself looked them in the face and called them at one point white-washed tombs. Their problem went deep down inside of them all the way to their heart. And in their hardness of heart, all they could ever do was try to establish their own righteousness through legalism. We must go to God, they thought, because God won't come to us. We must work our way to heaven because it all depends on us, they thought. Of all the devastating effects which their legalism produced, we see in this passage before us that worst of all, it produced in them a hatred for God as they despised Jesus himself and a hatred for their neighbor as they had no compassion on the man whom Jesus healed. Jesus taught that the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, if you fulfill those two commandments, all of the law and the prophets hang on those. But the Pharisees lived as if the greatest commandment was to love the law which they had created in order to promote their own self-righteousness. And this left them completely unable to recognize Jesus and unable to have compassion on their fellow man. This passage teaches us this morning that while the Lord loves people, legalists love their own law. And as a pastor, I have to wonder how many of us have that very same problem here today? How many of us have this same hard heart? How many of us are unable to see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or if we are, how many of us fail to put on the new man and still drag around the old one with us wherever we go? I want us to see this passage before us this morning in in three parts. I don't want the three-part division which I've just constructed in order to sort of move things along and to highlight specific things. I don't want that division, the sermon outline, if you will, to distract you in any way. I want it to just flow right with the narrative. And so avert your eyes from the screen if it would distract you. But I want us to see this in its parts And as we dissect it, I want it to end then, as we think about what this means for us, certainly the Holy Spirit will apply this passage to us, and I can never help myself but to apply as I go as well. But after we see the passage and we analyze it, I want to then look at the symptoms of the hard hearts of the Pharisees to ask ourselves if we might bear any of those very same symptoms. In the passage before us, in this round two of the fight between Jesus and the Pharisees regarding the Sabbath, we first of all see the scrutiny in verses one and two. 
the scrutiny in verses 1 and 2. Mark tells us again he, Jesus, entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus or watched him to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Mark uses his language here to explain to us and to remind us that this is not the first time that an event has occurred in the synagogue. In fact, we could go back to chapter 1 and see that the first time Jesus' authority was revealed in his teaching and his authority revealed in his ability to cast out demons, his authority over the spiritual realm, it was revealed in the synagogue as it was Jesus' turn to teach. Luke tells us that on this day, it was also Jesus' turn to teach. As he walks into the synagogue, just a normal Saturday, a normal Sabbath for the Jews, as he was a faithful Jew who was faithful to keep the Sabbath, to rest and to worship on the holy day, people were already there. And they watched him. You notice that Mark doesn't tell us exactly who it was that watched him. He just says they watched Jesus. Luke tells us that it was the scribes and Pharisees who were watching Jesus, but we can get that from the context of Mark as well. The previous passage revealed to us that it was the conflict, that that a conflict was occurring between Jesus and the Pharisees, and the end of our passage in verse 6 tells us that that conflict continues with the Pharisees' scheme to kill Jesus. Who is the they? Well, it's the Pharisees and the scribes, but I think Mark wants us to think a little bit more carefully. I think Mark wants to show us that the they is not just the scribes and the Pharisees, but the they, in fact, is all those who had not yet responded to his preaching of the gospel. They watched him, Mark tells us. To watch is a a compound word. It signifies to us not just a glance, but a gaze. They stared at him. And so you are taken then to a story or those movies or television shows where the bad guy sort of sits in the dark corner looking all creepy, right? And the good guy walks in and the bad guy's tucked in the corner and he's got his eyes on him the whole time. This is the scene that was happening in the synagogue that day. And I would remind you why it was that they were supposed to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath in the first place, to worship God. And yet in their self-righteousness, God was the farthest thing from their mind that day. And so they watch him, eyes fixed, crosshairs on Jesus in order to take him out. And Mark tells us the reason that they watched him because there was a man there a man with a withered hand who doesn't really get much attention other than that he's highlighted because of his disability was the man staged there did the pharisees put him there on purpose we don't know but certainly within the providence of god he was where he was supposed to be that day They watched because they wanted to see if Jesus would heal this man with the withered hand. Why would they watch to see if Jesus would heal the man with the withered hand? Because they knew he could heal. They had seen it with their own eyes. There was no denying the reality That one day, not too long ago, a man was lowered through a rooftop who could not walk. And Jesus said to the man, arise, take up your mat and go home. And the man actually did. No denying it. They knew what he could do. And so they decided to use what he could do in order to set him up so that they could make a charge against him. The word accuse 
is not just a a general accusation. It's actually a technical legal term. It was the word used when you brought a charge in the court of law against someone. What they wanted to do was to witness Jesus break their law and then to run to the Sanhedrin and say, see, he did it. He's a lawbreaker. Get him. And so they scrutinized his every move, watching him the whole time just to see if he might slip up according to their standards. And this moves us then from the scrutiny to the scandal in verses 3 to 5. They scrutinize him, they watch his every move so that they could bring an accusation against him, and then a scandal erupts. In the previous four passages, it's always been the enemies of Jesus who first engaged him. Why do your disciples break the law? Why does he, in their minds thinking, why does he blaspheme? Only God can forgive sins. But you'll notice who engages here in verse 3? Jesus. It's as if our Lord had said in his mind, that's enough. That's enough. I'm done dealing with the self-righteousness of these Pharisees. I'm going to expose it, and I'm going to expose it publicly right here in this worship service. Maybe Jesus interrupted his sermon. Maybe it was before his sermon. Maybe it was after his sermon, but it was a public event. The first thing he does is call the man with the withered hand. He says to him, come here. Or literally, the Greek reads, arise into the middle. Which gives you a better sense of what Jesus was talking about, right? They were gathered together for a worship setting much like this one. Jesus was standing in front of them much like I am. If I were to say to one of you, come up here and present yourself front and center, that would be exactly what Jesus did. So he calls the man with the withered hand up in front of everyone so that everyone can see what's about to go down. Again, we don't know what the man was thinking, but we can ask him one day in heaven because the man demonstrates true, genuine faith in a moment here. Perhaps the man was filled with embarrassment or shame How would you like to be called forward for your disability? Luke tells us that it was the man's right hand that was withered, which most of us are right-handed. This likely would have left the man unable to work, at least with his right hand. There's tradition that says the man was a stonemason and, and this left him then having to be a beggar, but we don't read that in the Bible, so we don't know if that's true or not. The, the reality is that the man had a withered hand. And Jesus says, present yourself up here. So he does. Who is he to ignore the command of the Lord Jesus? And then verse 4 tells us that the next words that Jesus had to speak We're not to the man, but to them, his opponents, those who were watching him like a hawk just to see if he would break their law so that they could bring a charge against him. And here the Lord says, watch this. You're looking for something? You got it. Here it is. Oh, to have the courage of Jesus. He says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? What he has to say to them is a question to ask them, which is a very good tactic, isn't it? He could teach them and tell them, listen, guys, you've got it all wrong. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I gave you the Sabbath. The Sabbath is supposed to be a blessing. It's lawful all the time to do good. It's always lawful to save life. It's unlawful to harm. It's always unlawful to kill. 
He could have just said that, but instead he turns it around on them and says, you tell me. Which is the more proper thing? Which is the more lawful thing to do? To do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? Now think about that question. Is that a hard question? No, it's, an e, it's a no-brainer. It's a softball question, right? Any dummy can answer that question. But how do they respond? Verse 4 finishes with, but they were silent. Not a peep from these rebels. Not a word. Why? Well, because if they gave the right answer, an answer I'm sure they knew, everyone knows, it's lawful to do good, it's lawful to save life, it's unlawful to harm, it's unlawful to kill, right? But if they would have answered it correctly, then who would have been right in this situation? Jesus. And you tell me, when you're in an argument with someone and you're dug down deep, Even when you realize they bring up a right point, do you concede to that point? Tell me honestly. No, you don't. Now, if the fruit of the Spirit, if the Holy Spirit takes control control of your heart and you realize, like, okay, I got to humble myself here. But if you're in your anger, you just say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm right, you're wrong. I don't care if two plus two equals four. Today I say it equals six. They were obstinate because they were self-righteous. But, but what's the, the fruit, or rather, what's the root of self-righteousness? What's the heart of self-righteousness? Pride. Pride. If we admit that Jesus is right, that means we're wrong. And we're never wrong. We're the Pharisees. We're the examples for all of Israel. We do everything the right way. But of course, if we answer him by saying, it's lawful to harm and it's lawful to kill, then everyone's going to know we're a bunch of fools. So as they discern the situation, they realize that the best course of action was to zip it. Say nothing. When in doubt, say nothing. If we don't say anything, we can't be wrong. And if we don't say anything, then that means Jesus can't be right. But do you know the problem with that type of thinking? That type of thinking looks only to the externals and forgets the internal. Forgets that in actuality, they had already answered the question in their hearts. But you see, that's exactly what self-righteousness is. It ignores the heart and it looks only to the externals. I want to make it look like I'm a really godly person. Even though inside of me, I'm a hot mess. But as long as I don't let it out, no one will know. In fact, I'll fool God himself and I'll just slide right through the pearly gates. Verse 5 then tells us what Jesus' response to them was. And he responded with two emotions. Mark often highlights the emotions of the God-man. He doesn't have emotions in his deity, but he has emotions in his humanity. And he looked around at them, emotion number one, with anger. He looked around as a descriptive word, and and you even can kind of get the picture from that looking around. That's exactly what he did. He, He gazed the crowd. Perhaps even thinking, is no one going to answer the question? Is no one going to state the obvious? And as he looked around, what was brewing in his heart? Anger. Righteous, holy anger. The Lord Jesus burns with anger 
as he is the Holy One of Israel who is encountering the despicable sin of the Pharisees who are so obstinate, so hard-hearted that they refuse to answer his question. They were so set in their way, so immovably proud that they wouldn't concede even a little bit of ground to Jesus. And so what was our Lord's response to them? Anger. This is the very anger of God that you read about all throughout, especially the Old Testament. It was the anger of God that led him to destroy northern Israel when we studied the book of Amos. It is the very anger of God that the scriptures say burns continually against sinners. It is the very anger of God that burns against you if you have never repented of your sins and believed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does Jesus do in his anger? Look at them. That's it. He could have eradicated them and still maintained his perfect holiness and perfect righteousness. He would have been right to do so. But you'll notice that the second emotion that our Lord experienced in that moment was grief. His anger coupled with his grief and his grief was stirred up by their hardness of hearts. Charles Spurgeon says, His was not anger which desired evil to its object. No touch of malevolence was in it. It was simply love on fire. Love burning with indignation against that which is unlovely. We praise God that even though he is angry with sinners all the time, he is also constantly extending grace towards sinners. While he is angry with sinners, he is simultaneously sympathetic toward sinners, grieved toward sinners. That's something that we can't quite understand. Do you know why? Because God is God and we are not. But the reality is that the scripture presents both sides of the coin. God is angry with sinners. And God loves sinners at the same time. How is this anger then dealt with? It is dealt with at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where God the Father has poured out his anger against his people on his very own son. So that now for Christians, for all those who repent of their sin and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will never again experience the anger of God. It was the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts that stirred up the anger and the grief of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was as if, because he could, He could see their fate. He knew where the road that they were walking down would lead them. He called them again and again to himself to receive forgiveness of their sins, to receive a pardon from God, to exchange the anger of God for the love of God. But what did they do? They rejected him. Let me ask you this morning, in what state are you? Have you repented of your sins and believed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or do you still remain under the anger of God? What do you do with the call of the gospel? The call of the gospel that goes out to you right here, right now. Repent of your sins. See the love of Jesus Christ. See his arms open wide. See the reality that he is the gate 
into the kingdom of God. See the truth that he is the way and the life. See the great and glorious reality that you can have life, but you can only have it through faith in Jesus Christ. Where are you? The scandal then erupts as Jesus turns his attention back to the man. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. The man has to stretch out his hand because you remember his hand is withered. It's smaller than it is supposed to be. It's experienced atrophy. It looks differently than it would have looked if it were a sort of normal hand. So Jesus tells the man, stretch out your hand. And what does the man do? He stretched it out. He stretched it out. Over and over again, Mark loves to show us that faith is not just saying, I believe. Real faith is acting on the words of Jesus Christ. Mark highlights for us the faith of this man. He did what Jesus told him to do. And what happened? His hand was restored. Just like every other time Jesus had healed so many people, it worked. Did Jesus exert any energy? Well, I suppose there was some divine energy that was exerted, but as a man, he just stood there and spoke, right? He told the men, stretch out your hand. Could this be a violation of the Sabbath? Could this be counted as work? Apparently to the Pharisees who scrutinized everyone else's lives to find out where they were sinning and how they could accuse them. And so the scandal erupts and that leads us then to verse 6 where we see the scheme. The scheme. Verse 6 says the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Some of our Bibles translate to the hold counsel, the verb to hold counsel as conspired against him. That's a good explanation of what it means to hold counsel. It's not just that they went and talked, but they went and talked about how they might destroy Jesus. Who did they talk to? They talked to the Herodians. Followers of King Herod, of Herod the Great, his constituents. They, the Herodians, were a secular political party who wanted nothing to do with the religion of Israel, even though they were Jews themselves. What they wanted was the power that Rome delegated to the Herodians. And if you were a friend of the Herods, then you could get away with just about anything you wanted to. You get a speeding ticket, just pass it up to Herod. He'll get rid of it. Maybe your donkey was moving a little too fast that day. So they were a political party that was really seen, especially in the eyes of the Pharisees, as the enemy. Rome was the enemy. And then those who sided with Rome was a worse enemy. And who were those who sided with Rome? Well, amongst them were the Herodians. The Pharisees and the Herodians don't play nice together. Except when the enemy of my enemy becomes my friend. And so you see then the depravity of their hearts, the the lengths that their pride led them to, where their self-righteous, where their desire to maintain their self-righteousness brought them. It brought them to an alliance that they never would have made had they been in their right minds. But sin makes you stupid, doesn't it? You see something and you want it so badly. And so you begin to compromise your integrity. I want it. I'm going to get it. And I don't really care what lines I have to cross. This was then the beginning of the plot to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that they didn't want to just kill him. 
The text says they wanted to destroy him. Stronger word, isn't it? They didn't want just to kill him. They wanted to eradicate him. No no memory of this man named Jesus. We not only want to wipe him from our community, we want to wipe his name from the history books. Do we not experience that very same hatred toward the Lord Jesus Christ today? Isn't this exactly what Psalm 2 teaches us? The nation's rage and the people's plot in vain to cast off the burdens, to cast off the chains that God has put on people because they view God's life-giving law as a terrible burden that keeps them from doing what they want to do. Rather than seeing the law of God as life itself, The creator has given us the instructions. And if he's made it, and if he's told us how to live in it, then it's best to follow his ways, is it not? But those who refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ simply want to establish their own ways. Don't tell me what to do, God. I'll pray to you when it's convenient for me, when I need something but you don't get to tell me how to live. The reality is that this is the exposure. This is the, an illustration of what it looks like to have a hard heart. It was the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees that Jesus was grieved with. Hard-heartedness is not the same thing as cold-hearted. Hard-heartedness leads to being cold-hearted, But hard-heartedness is used throughout the scriptures to explain being blind to the actions of God and deaf to the words of God. And as Paul said, alienated from the life of God. It wasn't just that they were having a bad day. The reality is they were dead in their sins, completely convinced that their way was the way of life. So as we think then about how we might understand or rather how we might begin to apply this a little bit more specifically to our own lives, I want us to think about some symptoms of a hard heart. What do we see in the Pharisees' actions that sprang from the hardness of their hearts? And do we perhaps see that very same thing or traces of it in our own lives? Well, first of all, we see the first symptom of a hard heart is intense scrutiny. The Pharisees exhibited intense scrutiny as they watched Jesus' every move. Why did they watch his every move? Because they wanted to bring a charge against him. Because they wanted to take him out. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to say, ha ha, gotcha. Do you ever find yourself scrutinizing the lives of other people in the very same manner? Now, maybe you don't want to kill them, but maybe you just want ammunition to think about why you don't like them. Maybe especially someone who just rubs you the wrong way. We live in a fallen world, right? Not all of our personalities mesh. Or did you not know that? Okay, I I assume you did. Some of us just naturally get along more than others, and some of us have to work to love our brothers and sisters, right? To love our neighbors, right? So my question is this. Are you willing to put in the work that it takes to love the people that you don't get along with quite so naturally? Or instead, do you keep them at arm's length? Do you scrutinize their lives thinking about, I knew they'd mess up. That's just like them. Always doing that, fill in the blank. I'm so much better than them. Now, of course, you don't say that out loud, but in reality, isn't that what the heart is doing in that moment? I'm so much better than them. 
Jesus, you're welcome that I'm on your team. (laughs) You know, you could have had that guy, but you got me. We laugh, but isn't, isn't that the disgustingness of sin? Christians ought to be known as people. The church ought to be known as a place that does scrutinize, but scrutinizes in order to see evidence of God's grace. And that's a whole other animal, isn't it? I often on Saturday nights lay in bed thinking about the sermon, thinking about the passage that I'm going to preach, and often it's a time for me to repent of my sin. Because I realize every single week, and it's not just Saturday night, but I realize every single week, I fall short of the glory of God. I'm a sinner. And I have to stand before other sinners and preach the perfect, inerrant, infallible, sufficient word of God. And it's humbling. And so last night I was having a moment crying out to the Lord, Lord, forgive me. I see my own reflection in the mirror of the Pharisees. I scrutinize people way too much. And I was asking the Lord to forgive me and to restore me. I was believing that the Lord would do that very same thing because my righteousness will not get me to heaven. My righteousness is like filthy rags. It's the righteousness of Jesus that cleanses me. And it truly has. So I was asking God in light of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, clean me up. Help me to scrutinize people in light of your grace. Instead of seeing their faults, Lord, I want to see your work. One who truly loves God and truly loves people will be a scrutinizer not of all that they do wrong, but of all that God is doing in that person's life. And so we see the first symptom of a hard heart is intense scrutiny. And the second is a lack of compassion. A lack of compassion. The Pharisees were so concerned that they keep every letter of their own law, not God's law, because they had attached their law onto God's law, which is a no-no, of course, and which actually serves to show that they did not love God's law. They loved their law. Why? Because their law gave them all the rules they needed to be really nice religious people. And what did they want people to think of them? They were a really nice religious person. They loved, Jesus says in John, they loved the praise that comes from men, not the praise that comes from God. And so because Jesus, in their minds, broke their law, they could have no compassion for the man with a withered hand who was just trying to get by, just trying to provide for his family, who happened to have a disability and was just doing the best that he could. So rather than see Jesus or, or eagerly anticipate Jesus' healing or even go to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, this guy really needs your help. They brought charges or, or attempted to bring charges against Jesus Christ. They used the man with the withered hand as a pawn in their game of chess against Jesus. How about you? How do you see people? Do you see people as a means to an end? Or do you see people, all people, as worthy of honor and dignity because they are made in the image of God? That's why the church has rocked the world by doing things like making hospitals adopting children. All of these things Christians came up with. Because when you see the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you really see it, you can do nothing else but be compassionate yourself. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. So I ask you then, do you regularly hand out mercy 
or are you a dispenser of wrath? Third, the third symptom of a hard heart that we see here is a refusal to deal with Jesus' words. A refusal to deal with Jesus' words. Jesus asked the Pharisees an easy question, and they, instead of answering it, chose to stay silent. They knew if they answered it the right way, an answer they certainly would have known, they knew it would have indicted them. And as the passage continues to unfold, it turns out that probably even as Jesus was asking them that question, they were plotting to kill him on the Sabbath. They refused to deal with his words. In their stubborn obstinance, they would not answer his question. They ignored him and they rejected his word. So then I ask you, how do you treat the words of Jesus? Is this the nourishment of your entire existence? Or is it the thing that continually nags you that you don't pick up throughout the week? I know I should read it, but I'm just so busy. Do you meditate upon the life-giving word of God? Do you give the word of God first place in every day of your life? Or do you fall into the same pattern that every other worldly person does by allowing your schedule to dictate the way you live your life instead of taking control of your schedule with the self-control the Holy Spirit gives to you and saying, I will build my house on the rock of obeying the words of Jesus Christ. If I have to get less sleep, if I have to get less entertainment, if I have to work less, whatever I have to do, I will revolve my life around the word of God. What about those who have never repented of their sins and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? What do you do with the words of Jesus right here, right now. Jesus heals the man with the withered hand. Jesus will heal your corrupt heart of its sinful condition if you repent of your sins and you believe in him. So we see an intense scrutiny, a lack of compassion, a refusal to deal with the words of Jesus, and then fourth and finally, Following a desire, no matter the cost. Following a desire, no matter the cost. The Pharisees wanted Jesus to be eradicated so badly, they made an alliance with the Herodians, and they plotted to kill on the Sabbath. Why? Because no matter what, they had to get rid of Jesus. That's what sin does. If you allow a desire, any other desire than a desire to please God, if you allow that to run rampant in your life, you will meet this same problem. Sure, you won't conspire with the Herodians to kill Jesus. They're long gone. but you will violate the holy character of God and you will seek to crucify again our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ just because you wanted something really badly. Is it worth it? So instead of fulfilling sinful desires then, what if, what if you ask the Lord to change your heart? What if you ask the Lord to make pleasing him your greatest, most deepest desire? And what if you ask that all the time? Because the reality is we need it all the time. What if you asked him to do that? Because my friends, make no mistake. Your life does reflect 
what you most love. The Pharisees put on full display for us what it looks like to have a hard heart, to be both unable and unwilling to acknowledge God in any genuine way. They typify both the the corrupt nature that is inherent to all mankind and they demonstrate the ugliness of depravity. They illustrate the age-old problem of self-righteousness, that exhausting pursuit of rule-keeping so that God would be pleased with me. But my friends, Jesus preaches a gospel which says that God will never be pleased with you until you repent of your sins and believe in his Son. Jesus' gospel teaches us that we could never earn God's love, but in fact, he has already given his love and it is available to all in his Son. The mentality of the Pharisees says, I obey And therefore, God loves me. But the Christian says, God loves me, and therefore I obey. We have before us this morning in the Lord's Supper that precious reminder to us of just how God loves us and how much God loves us. How much does God love the world? So much so that he gave his only begotten son. That the son who was from the bosom of the father from all eternity would come into a fallen world and take on flesh so that he might fulfill the law of God in perfect righteousness and then go to the cross and be crushed by his father So that he could bear the sins of his people once and for all. And then rise from the grave so that he could demonstrate that he is the sin bearer who rose from the grave to justify his people from their sins and to give them eternal life in him forever. And then ascended into glory where he promised he will come back again one day. And that is what we celebrate right here. And so, my friend, I would remind you as we come to the Lord's table that this is for Christians. This is for the one who clings to Jesus like nothing else. Who eagerly anticipates the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who loves Jesus because Jesus has loved you. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that you're welcomed here. We want you here. This is the best place for you to be. God himself has put you here. But I also want you to know that as we pass these plates in just a few moments, you need to please let these go by you. Don't take these. The Bible warns you that if you do, and in fact if you are a Christian who is living in unrepentant sin, if you do eat and drink this meal, then you will eat and drink upon yourself the judgment of God. But the Bible also reminds us In Jesus' own words, he told us he would not eat this meal again until he does so with us in heaven. It reminds us that we have a Savior who is coming back. And he will take us to himself. Oh, that day. I want to ask the ushers now, if you would please come forward as we prepare to pass out these elements. I've reminded you already that these are for Christians and Christians only, and so in just a few moments, the men will make their way down the row and they'll pass these elements out. And so if you are a Christian, regardless of whether you're a member of this church, you are welcome to these elements. But if you're not a Christian, we ask that you let these pass by you. I want to pray for us, and then the men will distribute the elements We will take some time then to reflect upon our own hearts, a time of confessing any sin that might reside in our hearts, but also, and I I mean this truly, also a time to celebrate the fact that we are forgiven in Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are good. 
We thank you for your goodness to us, a goodness that we certainly do not deserve, but a goodness that you give to us nonetheless. We ask, O oh God, that you would search our hearts. We are blind to the depths of our own depravity. So we pray that you would reveal to us any sin that might be residing in our hearts so that we might confess it and be rid of it and be cleansed of all unrighteousness. We pray, O oh God, that as we think about what you have done for us, that you would plant it deep in our hearts, that it would continually transform us and change us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.